Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Now we present Snap Sessions interview and some performance highlights with British comic and political activist Mark Thomas. Doug has been friends with Mark since 1987, when he and Tracy Burns performed regularly with Mark on the British alternative cabaret circuit. Mark has been a progressive political force on stage and off for his entire career. Here's Snap Sessions conversation with British comic Mark Thomas. It kind of helps actually if you imagine that there's two Marks, okay? There's a good mark, and there's a bad mark. So I, I, I think if women want a word that they can use that men can't use as a swear word, I think the word you're looking for is clitoris. No man could swear using the clitoris word. Do you fucking big clitoris? Don't use words you can't find. Is it clitoris? <laughs> clitoris is a fucking great word, isn't it? There should be a Shakespeare character called Clitoris. What ho, my noble lord of Clit? Well met, my duke of Volva. What news? What news from Labia bring thou hands? My lord, the flags fly red in Labia this month. We must retreat for we shall lose the argument. And if if women don't use the word as a swear word, I think we should name products after it. I've had the Capri, we've had the Granada, I want the Clitoris. That's what I want. Small car, good on petrol, easy to park, fucker to find once you've left it. That... That's what I want. That's what I want. I want the Renault Clit. That's what I want. Papa, Nicole, who the Clit? I'm glad to see you. I've had every single bit of me examined by a camera recently. Uh-oh. <laughs> Colonoscopy? Oh, man, everything. I have colonoscopy, I've had a cystoscopy. Oh. Yeah. And of course... The great thing about the um, the colonoscopy was because uh, Britain is absolutely you know dependent upon immigrant nurses and doctors. We had this wonderful Filipino nurse who, while they're sticking this camera up my ass, there's no dignity. There's no fucking dignity there whatsoever. <laughs> there's just a bunch of professional people shoving a Kodak up my ass. That you can frame it as any way as you like. But dignity left the room a long time ago. <laughs> they actually give you a thing called a set of dignity pants, which is a sort of burlap, a kind of post sack kind of material. And they hang around your knees with a fly the length of your thigh, right? And then they say these good dignity pants. It's like, please don't. So anyway, the woman the woman was great because she made it. She she because well, I was lying there, the camera's inside me, and she just starts rubbing my back and she would just went, Go on, fart. We're in the basement. It doesn't matter. Go on. Fart. I said, I'm absolutely fine. Because it doesn't matter. I've got no sense of smell smell. <laughs> then she looks at the picture of my bowel and go, You've got a beautiful bowel. <laughs> Isn't that great to know? Okay, interview's over. We got what we need. <laughs> I appear to be well, and the National Health Service didn't charge me a fucking penny. Lucky guy. Yeah. <laughs> we might as well start and just ask you about your recent uh, NHS tour. You said you just did a tour, like 100 gigs or something <laughs> yeah. like that, for the NHS. This is great for Americans well, to hear. What I did was, um, I, I worked with this great director called Nick Kent, and what he does is he specialises in what are called inquiry plays. And so he did the show about the murder, the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence, which is a very, very important point in this country's history with race. And there was a big investigation into it. And for the first time, an official body described the Metropolitan Police as being institutionally racist. And he he did a play of the inquiry where they actually got the people who were accused of his murder at at a public inquiry. And two of them were later found guilty of this and went to jail. 
And so he did a play called The Colour of Justice. It toured, not just all over Britain, it toured in places that we, you would never expect to find a theatre. The black community in London just absolutely were electric with it. And he's an amazing director to work with. So he says, right, we've got, I was talking to him and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think we should work together and I think we should do a show on the NHS because uh, it's its 70th birthday. Yeah. And he's great. He just went, what we'll do is we'll just spend a month in residency and then we'll do a load of interviews. So that's what we did. I did a month's residency with four NHS hospitals. So I would go in and I would shadow doctors and surgeons and nurses. And the second day in, it was a, the, I was in major trauma and it was unbelievable. It just like stabbings coming in, car accidents. And I'm standing in the corner trying to write up my notes. Yeah, God. <laughs> I'm standing trying to take up as little room as possible. And it was really full on. So we witnessed everything from the major trauma unit all the way through to the dementia team. And the dementia team are just amazing because I, I'm now actually a patron of a dementia garden at a hospital just oh. because this team is so brilliant. This woman, one of the nurses I got to know quite well who comes to the show, she comes up she says, do you want to be a patron of a dementia garden? I said, I don't even know what it is. She said, it's a rat infested shithole, but it's our rat infested shithole <laughs> and it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> How can you resist? How can you resist a thing like that? So we did this experience of going through the NHS for a month and following these different places from gastric sleeve operations through to sort of breast cancer and screenings and public health and all of that. And then we did a series of public interviews. Now, the, the public interviews were like academics, practitioners, all of these kind of people. And normally this guy, Nick, is so posh, it's unbelievable. Right. He's he's wonderful, but he's so posh. Oh, one gig we did, he said, I've reserved 18 tickets. I said, really? He said, yes, I'm bringing my village along to see you. And I said, that's <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Seriously, he turned around to me and said, I'm bringing my blacksmith. And I was like, <laughs> 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 I'm bringing my blacksmith to the show. But he is a brilliant, brilliant director. And so he said, we'll go and talk to all these politicians, these former health ministers. And when he says, you know, we'll talk to these former health ministers, you know, I'm like, I'm like, right, I'll disguise myself as a dustbin. We'll hide in the car park. As soon as they step out of their office, I'll run at them with a camera. But he's like, no, no, we'll just invite them for dinner. <laughs> so we, we met all these incredible people. And the show was made up with these interviews, which I reenact. And, and sometimes we show clips of the actual people, but very rarely. And the stories of going through the NHS and, and the political argument about the NHS, about why it works, how it works. The great thing about the, the National Health Service for me is I, I describe it as socialism in action. Other people would describe it as Christianity in action. And I've met other people who've just said it's human kindness. And what it is, is it works that you give a bit of your tax money and that's how it works. Some of your tax money goes into the National Health Service. And so everybody contributes and those who earn more contribute more. And then everyone takes out 45 million people were born under the NHS. Everyone who walks around this country who's inoculated is alive because of the NHS. Um, we will experience, you know, 80% of the time that we spend in the NHS will be in the last 10 years of our life. And so all of us will need it. All of us will need it. And the brilliant thing is, this is the state's way of providing care. And actually, the remarkable thing about it is you can call it socialism, you can call it Christianity, you can call it kindness. But this is the nearest the state can get to providing any kind of love, yeah. to caring for us physically in our time of trouble and in time of sickness. Consistent. So that was an amazing old show to do. Yeah, and great. And in comparison with the American system, it shows to itself to be that way. The first time I ever went to Britain, I went in 1972 when I was a student, and I decided to, I'd work construction all summer, and I decided to take three weeks and go to Britain. The first day I landed in London, and then I took the Flying Scotsman up to Edinburgh the second day, morning. I get on the train, and I'm sitting across from these three people, nice, mom, dad, and a, and a daughter. And we start talking about the NHS. And the man says to me, I take it for granted. It's like the air we breathe. And as an American, I thought, oh, I love that line. I've never yeah. forgot it. And when we are, we're arguing now in the upcoming election about having a real NHS, Bernie Sanders is pushing it, etc. And we're all, a lot of us, Ken and I would love to see it happen. But we love the idea of the NHS and we love the idea of a lot of European systems. Long story short, I'm glad you did this tour. Oh man, it was it was brilliant to do, and uh, I got invited to perform the the show 
by the chief medical officer of England in front of all the civil servants in, from the Ministry of Health and Social. Well, you know, is apropos um, of this NHS tour, your mom was a midwife or a, a nurse, right? Uh, when you were growing up, wasn't she involved with the NHS? Your mom and your dad was in a builder, right? Yeah, my, and is, my, my mom was a midwife. Um, my dad was a builder. Yeah, you're right. I remember talking to you and I, I met your mom and dad early on. Because my parents swore like fuck. That was their favorite word. My mom and dad were king and queen of gutter gob alley of shite kingdom they ruled right if there was an olympics for swearing my parents would be there representing great britain right going around a track with a union jack tracksuit great britain fuck off my my dad my dad would be there doing the fuck part my mum my mum would be doing the gymnastics. Arsehole bastard shit, arsehole fuck, arsehole bastard shit fuck. <laughs> and she's dropped a twat, that's two points off. <laughs> my grandmother swore more than anyone else in the world. My grandmother, and she was deaf. So someone would leave the room and you'd just hear, What a fucking shit gobbler! Fucking shit gobbler! And we're on the doorstep. Thanks for coming, Doctor. Really appreciate the man. Thanks a lot. It was dark. Thank you. Cold fingers, no wonder off back in Spazon. She's fine. She's fine. Thank you. You grew up in South London. Which part of town are you from originally? Well, it's Clapham. Clapham. Right. Okay. No, South London. Right. So, South London, Clapham. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit about your... It's like many places. Yeah. So I know where you've recently, where you've been recently been living, but I know you lived near Clapham Common, grew up around there. What was it like being a miniature uh, Mark Thomas around that area? Yeah, so I do live in Clapham Common. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Did did you have a, a happy childhood around that area, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I kind of, I, I live in the place I grew up, so I think I'm horribly parochial. Do you know what I mean? But it's in like a good mom. way. I, I hope so. <laughs> like my mum lives around the she lives around the corner from the school that she used to go to as a kid which in london is really rare the street that me and jenna got our house in we've actually it's at the end of the road our house is at the end of the road from um the place where my grandmother used to be an air raid warden during the war so she used to get people into the the bomb shelters during the war so i am horribly a parochial what i loved about growing up in south london was there's a sense of freedom there that you could just run around the place you could get on the tube you could go and see all sorts of stuff you could go to museums and libraries and parks you could go and see football you could go and do whatever you wanted there's this sense of adventure about the place and for me what was amazing was when i was it's really weird because when i was 16 i saw my first ever stand-up comic when i was 16 years old and it's an old guy called tommy trinder and i recommend <laughs> you look him up Tommy Trinder. He used to wear this trilby hat and he used to cut his catchphrase was you lucky people. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this amazing there's amazing footage of him performing in the streets in Italy during World War Two when the Allies have pushed through Italy. And Trinder's performing to the troops and somebody goes past in this carriage and they've obviously got some money and Trinder just shouts over the top, hello rich people, and carries on with his routine. And he, he was really incredibly well known. And my dad took me to see him. My dad, when I was 16 years old, he goes, come on, I'll show you a comic. And um, we went to see him at this place called Battersea Art Centre, which I've just finished a two-week residency at. So I am that parochial. But this guy, Tommy Trinder, was just, he was great. He was booked to do 20 minutes. He was in his 80s. He did an hour. And I just, wow. I, I loved it. And there were dancing girls. There was a xylophone player. There was a magician who was really bad. And it, so it, was, perfect. it was the perfect variety bill. And I loved all that musical and variety stuff, you know, because people forget there was a real radicalism there. My favourite anti-war banner was also American. Three words. Lesbians against Bush. Oh, perfect. Oh, it works on so many levels. Right, there was a woman called Mary Lloyd who used to be a musical artist. 
this is kind of like 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, somewhere around there. We used to have the, the Lord Chancellor who used to censor comedy and censor what was said on stage. So Mary Lloyd is a bit rude, okay? And she had a song, and the chorus was, she sits amongst the cabbages and peas. <laughs> now, <laughs> obviously, the Lord Chancellor has just said, well, you know, we can't have this kind of thing, this lewd behaviour. So he banned her from singing that line. That night, she goes on stage, everyone is there, Everyone knows that she has been banned from singing. She sits amongst the cabbages and peas. So Mary Lloyd sings, she sits amongst the cabbages and leeks. <laughs> That's wonderful. There's this real radicalism there. Mary Lloyd, right, she, um, she supported the musical artist strike. When the bottom of the bill artists went on strike for more money, she was the only or one of the only stars who came out and supported them. And because when she did that, there was a real pompous, awful right wing comic called um, George Roby. And he put on the first ever Royal Variety performance. And this was the show where the Queen comes to see it. And everyone, John Lennon once performed at it with the Beatles. And he said, everyone sing along. And if you're in the Royal Box, rattle your jewellery. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. The Royal Variety performance was a big deal. And George Roby did the first one. And he didn't invite Mary Lloyd because she supported the musical artist Strike. So she hired the theatre next to it on the same night and described it as Queen of the Halls and sold that fucker out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to remember Mary Lloyd for sure. That's great. Oh, but that's all great. That tradition is really exciting. You know, all that tradition. We look. We forget that we have a tradition or, that bucks the system. That is about sort of subversion. That is about saying what we want and not actually kind of making sure that that we kowtow to the powers that be. And what happens is, is, is what's happened at the moment is the right wing have claimed this idea of freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. uh, and and what they're doing is they say we'll we'll say what we like, and that's why we're saying exactly what the Lord and overlords want us to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So just kind of just shut up until you've got something different to say. And if my boy gets to, to 14, you know how 14-year-old boys are? They're just, I'm bored. Boring. Don't want a hobby. Boring old man. Didn't ask to be born. <laughs> boring, boring. Just going to sit in my room dressing black, listen to Velvet Underground. Fuck off. <laughs> what do you fucking mean you're bored? Get upstairs and have a wank. What the fuck's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? When I was your age, we had five a fucking day. Five a day! We never had toys or conkers or nothing. We made our own entertainment in my day. We never had your computers. You saw a pretty poly tights advert in the street. You memorised it. You got home. You remembered. That's what you did, son. <laughs> Oi, how many wanks have you had today? Two and a half. There are people in the third world who haven't got strength to finish one. Now fucking get up there to finish it! And, you know, I was remembering talking to you before you went off to um, theater school. You went up to Bretton Hall, right? Yeah, and yes. Before you, you became interested in political theater by the time you were there, right? Tell well, us I, about I that. I fell in love with political theater when I first saw a production of Bertolt Brecht's Caucasian Chalk Circle. And my mates were in it, right? And I went to see it, it was a school play. I went to laugh at them. And I came out of the theater amazed that you could go in there thinking one thing, see a show, experience something, and come out thinking something else. And that experience has informed everything I have ever done, that actually we can go into these places, that we can engage ourselves emotionally and intellectually, and, and the sense of fun and play and discover things that we didn't know. And that's amazing. That's a brilliant, brilliant thing. So I fell in love with political theatre before I'd even gone to drama school. I went to drama school, a band, and it was a really bad band, Doug. It was so bad. We, we called ourselves to catch nothing. Right. Whenever a band member left and we got a new band member, we added a number. So it went from catch nothing, catch one, catch two. Right. The bassist left, catch three. Catch. We were going to get to catch 22 and then disband as an <laughs> act of art creativity. We got to catch four. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but that's great. We were in this band and my friend, he went for an audition at drama school. He was the guitarist in the band. He came into a band rehearsal and just said, I've got a place at drama school. And my instinctive reaction was not, hooray, my friend has triumphed in the face of adversity and now will flourish like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon. My reaction was, I'm fucking better than him. I should go. So that's <laughs> 
So I went up and I, I did an audition and got in and the both of us went. And what was amazing, because I was at, 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 it was in the north of England, so it was, it was a very, very different cultural climate and economic climate as well and politically. Well, while I was there, they had the miners' strike, which was the most important political event. Um, it was just incredible. They had the miners' strike, and you know, you had thousands, thousands, and thousands of working class people, not just on strike, but their whole family. The government cut off their funding, so there's no strike pay. They froze the union's money. They cut off their dole money so that any support or unemployment benefit was cut. They had no money, right? Absolutely everything was cut off. So entire families, right, entire communities, the, the, the mum, the dad, the, the children, uncles and aunts, would be fed in soup kitchens, right? Thousands of people fighting against the Tories to try and keep the pits open, which, okay, you can judge now and say, well, it's carbon and fossil fuel and we shouldn't be doing that, and I would agree. But at the time, it was an attack upon those working class communities and trade unionism. I found myself just seeing friends of mine who lived in the same village as me getting arrested. They were getting arrested and fitted up by the police. And we would see the police arriving, just like van loads of them. And we were at Orgreave, which was the famous place where the police attacked the miners and just orchestrated a riot. And there's still a demand for an inquiry into that. And so what we did, me and my mates, we used to write these shows and we'd write them in a day and perform them the next day. And we'd perform it in a labour club. And the labour club was uh, literally a 47-foot long shed. It was called the Red Shed because it was red and a shed. And they, they had a bar in there. You know, it was just the most exciting place. The, the most exciting place. We used to have, the barman was a Greek communist who helped, he, seriously, he fought the fascists wow. and uh, fought the generals and helped unionise the trawlermen, right? And was, and um, I remember, I remember he used to heckle Labour councillors, right? He, if you tried to, if they came up to the bar and they tried to pay for a round of drinks with a £20 note, he would go, what the fuck do you think I am? Barclays Bank? <laughs> I remember this one guy coming up to, to this Labour councillor or a politician. I remember you when you were Trotsky at hippie with string in your hair. Go off. <laughs> he was a fearsome man. Yeah. And, but I said to him, have you been out to the picket line much? And he said, no much, maybe three times a week. And, and, and actually he meant that. He meant he should have gone more. He should, he should have had greater solidarity. Mm. And our red shed, we kept we kept about 150 families alive during that strike through collections, through food parcels, through distributions, through raising funds. And me and my mates used to write shows. We'd write them in the day, and then the next day we'd perform them. And there was a rule that we had. You can write the show. You can improvise out the script but you must never rehearse because rehearsing was a bourgeois affectation. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Man, there were some nights where we were improvising out of our fucking pants. We didn't know what we were doing, but, and, and it, but they liked us. And you'd always get this, uh, the, you'd always get at the end of the show. You'd, some of them would be good, but you'd always get at the end of the show. One of the trade unionists would go, right, let's give the students a round of applause. When we had, we had a, I think it was a 25th anniversary. No, it, no, it wasn't actually. What was it? it? Must have been the 30th anniversary of the miners' strike. Me and my mates, we actually read. We we formed. We reformed, and actually, we formed this. We reformed to do a gig, and we hadn't. Some of us hadn't seen each other in God fucking lo, you know so long. And my mate Pete caught me and my mate Ewan rehearsing in a car park <laughs> outside the shed. And we just heard this voice going, you fucking quizlings. <laughs> <laughs> no rehearsal. <laughs> that's where we started doing, that's where I really started doing sort of comedy and, and theatre together. So did you bring it down to London soon thereafter? Because we met yeah. you in 1987 and we met you at the store, I think. And that yeah, was yeah. myself, Tracy Burns and myself. We were in a double act, Burns and Nunn. And we had the great fortune to meet you at the store. And then we became friends pretty much immediately. And oh, after that, we, we basically spent a lot of the next five years hanging out with you. So it was an interesting well, actually, era. I, I have adopted you and walked around London going, these are my Americans, everyone. Everyone should have some. <laughs> <laughs> So did you did you 
come down to when you finished up there in Yorkshire and you had been obviously energized by the minor strike and you came down, did you just say, I want to, I want to fucking do this alternative comedy scene? What, what got you going that way? I think several things. One was the fact that actually I used to love, I used to, I loved stand up. I loved, I, I used to really love seeing people like Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly, who were amazing stand and Dave Allen, who I thought was just incredible. Dave Allen was the most subversive, radical comic. Uh, he was from Ireland. He did this, he did this great routine where in front of a TV audience, so you've got all this, it was in London Weekend Television, so it's a London audience, okay? He went on stage and just said, I, I, I get into trouble for telling Irish jokes, but I'll tell Irish jokes. If I want to tell Irish jokes, I'll tell Irish jokes. And the crowd go, yeah, and they'll start cheering. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself, don't you? Agree? Yeah, if you can't laugh at yourself, there's no point. Yeah, they all clap. So I'm going to tell Irish jokes and the crowd cheer. And he said, two paddies leave Dublin, go to work in London. The IQ in Dublin halves overnight. And the crowd <laughs> laugh and they clap and they cheer. And he says, you've got to be able to laugh at yourself. Don't you agree? And they yeah. When they get to London, the IQ doubles. And there's silence. <laughs> <laughs> and he turns to the crowd and said, now I thought we'd agreed that you have to be able to laugh at yourself. <laughs> and he had caught their bigotry smack on the jaw it was fantastic and for me he was this amazing inventive mercurial force of storytelling that was the most eloquent and subversive man he was just brilliant and so i love stand-up and what happened was i also love people like peter cook and dudley moore peter cook went through all sorts of his career but he was always someone who bucked the system he used to run private eye Private Eye was a satirical magazine that's incredibly investigative, and their journalists are just brilliant. And he, um, he used, they used to publish articles about Robert Maxwell, who used to own a newspaper in the UK and was a, a crook. He was a crook. He fell off the side of a boat somewhere in the Mediterranean, uh, having ingested his company's pension funds. So all these workers had nothing. And he was an absolute crook. But Peter Cook and Ian Hislop, who was uh, the editor of Private Eye, always used to mock him and call him Captain Bob and all of this. And Maxwell was always taking them to court for libel. And Ian Hislop tells the story of how Peter Cook always used to make sure he knew what restaurant Robert Maxwell was going to. So when it came to lunchtime in the middle of the court proceeding, Peter Cook and Ian Hislop would turn up at the same restaurant as Robert Maxwell, the man who was suing them. And every time Maxwell looked over, Peter Cook had a wadge of money and he'd just wave it hello. <laughs> 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 I love that. I love that. that <laughs> That's said, great. Fuck you. Yeah. you know, and it was absolute genius. So, I mean, I love people like that. And I loved Alexi Sale. Alexi Sale. Right. People like you know Monty Python and all of that. They they refer to Peter Cook opening the the gates to the field that we now all play in. But it, for me, it was Alexis Sale, and he didn't open the gate. He kicked down the door of the squat to which we're all inhabiting. He was a genius to see live. He was a surreal, acerbic, working class, intelligent, communist, just amazing. And I I loved watching him. That's what inspired me. So when I came down from college, I just thought that's what I want to do. So literally, I finished college at the end of July. And I had my first gigs booked in November the 19th, 1985, to do an open spot. And I used to work with my dad on the building site. So I'd work with my dad during the day. And then I'd go and perform gigs at night. And, you know, when you're sort of 23, 24, you can do that. You know, it's, it's fine. And my dad always, used, uh, my dad was great because actually there's always a point in a comics life where you half your jobs are paid and half of them are still open spots where you're trying to get lucky and get some bookings. And the money's not quite enough for you to get by, but you need to work more at what you're doing. So you need more time, but you need to earn money at the same time. So my dad just went, this is my dad. This is a quote. He just went, you know, you're fucking useless on Monday and Friday. Why don't you just do Tuesday to Thursday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's a contractor. He's a builder. You know, that's my dad was like yeah. that, too. Yeah. So he just was like, you, you do three days a week and you're a bit. So that gave me that little bit of time to be able to work on stand up. Because this is the weird thing. God is actually pro-choice. This is true. God is pro-choice. God has had one child in 2000 years. No one is that fucking lucky. <laughs> and it would be different. It'd be completely different if Jesus was a woman. 
She'd be out there going, girls always use condoms. Use condoms. Uh, two. Use two condoms because my mum didn't even fuck when she got pregnant. All right, so just use. <laughs> that meant I could get more gigs that would be paid gigs and it kind of, it probably saved me two or three years slogging around. And I just adored that scene. You remember what that scene was like? It was, it was really exciting. It was the fact Very that anyone exciting. could do it. There was like this punk rock attitude to it all. I remember seeing this one woman come along. I think she was Canadian. And she came along one night. She was doing a gig in the store, and, and, and she was clearly not quite off this planet. And it's, you know, it's, it's, she goes on stage at one o'clock in the morning, and she's talking to approximately 300 very drunk people. So she is probably talking to, do, do you know what I mean? She, she's talking to at least 2,000 pints of lager. That's what <laughs> she's doing. Right. And she produces a carrot and a potato. That's right. She produces a carrot and a potato. She walks on stage and goes, this is Mr. Carrot. This is Mr. Potato. And here they are. How are you, Mr. Carrot? I'm fine, Mr. Potato. And by that stage, the first wave of fuck off had started. Right. <laughs> and she just, this barrage, this barrage, barrage of just abuse was coming straight at her. It's one o'clock in the morning, right? They're screaming at her. She's trying to do a fucking ballet with a carrot and a potato. And um, she gets booed off. And there's all these amazing people like Jeremy Hardy and Paul Merton and all of that who are who, who are really sort of incredible figures of comedy in Great Britain. And um, everyone's sitting there in the dressing room and everyone sort of took breaths as if to say, what advice can we give you? And she went, you don't have to say a word. It should have been an onion and an aubergine. <laughs> and I, lo I love the fact that, all right, she was nuts, but she got a chance to go up there and try it out. And that's the important bit, that actually you would have performance artists there. Britain was kind of interesting back then because the theatres were losing their money, their subsidies. So loads of people in left-wing theatre were starting to come into cabaret. You had loads of singers, loads of street performers, loads of performance artists, poets. You had ranters, you had comedians, you had mime artists, you had jugglers, you had magicians, you had all these different people. And, and so what you could see was that you'd go along there and you'd never know what actually you were going to see. I only started to understand the comedy scene when I started to, to perform in it and you start to get to know people because sometimes you go along and you think, what the fuck? I remember going along once. Do you remember Cliff Parisi? And, yes, um, yeah. Andy Linden, they in, yeah. They were in a double act and they used to impersonate Argentinian soldiers and this was just after the Falkland War and they were called, they're an Argentina amateur dramatic group called the Port Stanley Amateur Dramatic Group after Argentinian soldiers. Right. And at one point, they get knives out. They used to have military equipment, and they get knives out on stage. And there was a pub in the East End, and this guy just literally goes, that's not a knife. Literally, it's a Crocodile Dundee moment. He brings out a knife, and Andy and Cliff grab him, put him into an arm lock, frog march him out onto the landing, and handcuff him to the Banastralians and leave him there. And they were the first act on. They <laughs> left him there for the whole gig. Throughout the whole gig, you could occasionally hear this voice going, lads, all right, joke's a joke, lads. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love that. Yeah, I remember I, you played all the big ones. You played The Star. You played The Tunnel, of course. You played yeah. Jonglers. You were one of the guys who could survive The Tunnel, as I recall. One time yeah. we survived, and I think it was by accident, because there wasn't enough punters there that night. But a, a oh, couple man. of times we got hammered off within seven minutes. Tell us a little bit about the tunnel. Oh, man, the tunnel was a, it was a fucking nightmare. But everyone had this thing of you have to do it. It literally was, at the, it was in the East End, it was at the far end of town, and it was right next to a tunnel under the Thames. And so the park, the car park was full of lorries. It was all these truckers. And um, they used to have strippers there during the afternoon, during lunchtime. And then on, on Sunday night was the Tunnel Club with Malcolm Hardy. Malcolm was a sort of legend. He was a Dickensian character. I mean, who, he, he, when he died, I mean, there was a thousand odd people came to his funeral. He really was this incredible larger-than-life character that dominated the scene. And he was one person who, if he had no money, then you would check your pockets in the dressing room, check your coats. But if he had money, you had the greatest night out ever. Uh, you know what I mean? And and he'd always ask for, a, you know, everyone used to smoke back then. So he'd always go, oh, you've got a lighter? And he'd, you'd give him your lighter and he'd just take it and put it in his pocket after he was lit a cigarette. And it was like, he'd put it in and you go, oi, oi. And you go, sorry, old habits. And you had to get everything. Once somebody owned him, Malcolm owned somebody money, right? And it was a performer called Martin. And Martin decided he wanted his money back. 
So he goes into the tunnel club and says, Malcolm, can I get a drink from the bar? I've got someone coming. I'll put, and Malcolm goes, just get a drink. You'll be all right. So he goes up to the bar and said, Malcolm said, it's all right if I get 200 quid. And the barman said, is that right, Malcolm? And Malcolm says, yeah, you're all right. And so Martin cheats Malcolm out of 200 quid, okay? Malcolm thought it was the greatest joke ever. <laughs> he was an amazing sort of force of nature. That club, if they liked you, they adored you. And if there were any cracks in your armour, you were dead. Yeah. It was just... I saw Mark Steele literally get bottled off stage with full bottles of beer. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember once doing that gig with Chris Lyman, who was this incredible comic. He was a clown, and he used to do a... I don't know if you remember, he had a gag. Okay. He used to come up with a euphonium. With, not not a, a big sousaphone. Do you remember, okay. like, the doctor's All gig? right. And he used to play it, and someone used to come on and used to click their fingers, and he would hand over the sousaphone. And as soon as that person had gone, he'd get a guitar out from his back, from a raincoat, and he'd start playing the raincoat. And as someone come on, they'd take the guitar. Then he'd get a banjo out, and someone come on, take the banjo out. Then it'd be a euphonium, then a trumpet, then a clarinet, then a flute, and then a harmonica. And then finally, he would whistle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Lovely clown piece. Oh, man, me and Chris Lydon did a gig once, and we did it at the tunnel, and he had stormed it. They loved him. They absolutely loved him. But someone got, bought him a drink, and he just was like one bit over the drinking limit, and he got stopped by the police, and they said, you, you failed the breathalyzer. They said, you're over the limit. We're going to have to take you in and arrest you. Chris just went, I'm not leaving all my musical instruments here. And they said, you have to. He said, well, I'm not. I'm just not going to go. These are musical instruments. It's in the middle of Deptford. I'm not going to leave my stuff here in the van. And the cops goes, all right, we'll, we'll take them with us. Not realising how many there were. Me and my mate stood by this cop van. There's all these people pile in with, you know, fucking guitars and banjos. And the last thing I see is a, is a woman police officer with her face pressed against the window trying to hold this sousaphone as they drive him off. <laughs> but... You're, what you're thinking of is the great thing. The great thing he used to do at the end of his show was he would strip naked, insert a firework between the cheeks of his buttocks, light it, and spray the audience with sparks to the tune of there's no business like show business. <laughs> he was brilliant that way. That was a terrific it, act. It was amazing. God, there's a pile of stories. You know, I would probably need 10 hours to get you to the tell you tunnel stories alone, you know? Oh, man, because there was, there was a, I mean, it was just, I mean, all of them, the, the whole thing, because it was right at the beginning of alternative comedy. Um, Malcolm used to perform with a thing called The Greatest Show on Legs, where they used to dance with deflating balloons. Um, and they used to tour with a band. And the, the stories that came out of that van, one night, they're speeding down the motorway. Malcolm is so drunk, he tries to open the side door of the van to go to the toilet. And they're speeding down. And someone grabs him, luckily. And so the next day, they have a big meeting to discuss health and safety and how they're going to not get into these situations and how they're going to handle it from now on in. Their solution is to cut a hole in the van floor so anyone can just piss through without having to leave the van. <laughs> but it was fun. It was definitely fun. Hey, it was immense fun. Yeah, tons it of fun. fun. And I think that, that, I mean, for me, I started feeling the fun went out of it a bit. Oh, yeah. And and so what, what I always love is, the thing that I love about performing is doing new stuff, coming up with new ideas, coming up with new ways of doing things, new ways of looking at things, new ways of, of saying things. You know, I can show you a watch and you'll go, that's a watch. But if I show you a watch and go, Guess how many people got cancer of the throat because they look they lit their brush while they're painting on the luminous dials. You look at something differently. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always, I always love that idea that people think they're looking at an elephant and actually what they're looking at is a tower block. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That you can show something different. I've always believed that you can change people's minds and their their thoughts and culturally what they believe in performance. I believe that that's. What it is, and I know people sometimes say, well, that's a really stupid idea. But I'm like, hang on a minute, Your, the whole basis of comedy is about change. Someone goes into a room, they're not laughing, you do something, they laugh. That's change. That's the very basic building block of it all. We make somebody laugh. That's a change. They go into a room, they see something, they experience an emotion. That is a change. Therefore, to actually say that comedy or art or performance or anything can never change people is an absurd contradiction that means you don't even thinking about what you're doing because it's all about change now for me i sort of became obsessed with this idea that it was about challenging 
sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And I remember they had a show called Jonathan Ross's Saturday Zoo. I remember that, yeah. Which was kind of like, it was kind of, it was like an interview program and you'd so you'd get Naomi Campbell or someone like that on and you'd have some really great brands and then you had some comics. So there's a whole load of comics uh, and there was me and Steve Coogan and Patrick Marber and Simon Day, all these amazing comics. And I remember one night there was a judge, there was a case in the UK of a judge who sentenced a rapist to pay for his victim's holiday. As he said, what she needed was a good two-week holiday to get over it all, which was obviously an outrageous and terribly awful victim-shaming misogyny. And I did a routine about it. So it was live television. And it started out by me saying, I want to get hold of that judge and stick a broom up his ass and say, never mind, mate, you've got two weeks in Spain coming to you. <laughs> <laughs> How the routine started. It was live television. It, it went on for about three, four minutes. And the routine ended by me leaning into the camera and saying, and by the way, judge, we know where you live, mate. <laughs> it was electric. It was electric. It was really amazing. For the next month, people were coming up to me about this and talking about it. And, and it had moved people. It had changed people. It had expressed something which hadn't been able to express. Their anger, their fury, their sense of indignity, their sense of indignation, their sense of injustice. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Sometimes that's what we do to, is, is, is actually put into words, put into action, put into gag the injustice that others and we feel. Yeah. And that's a really, really amazing thing. And I remember doing that. And it was a kind of night that changed my life, really. Yeah. That I was like, wow, we can do that. The thing was, it was um, I, I remember doing the Just for Laughs festival and um and again it was one of those moments where you go this is what we can get away with this is what we can say and i talked about the uh, anti-choice demonstrate anti-choice demonstrators and all of that and how you handle anti-choice demonstrators and um i got this i finished so you know it's like the, the kind of just for laugh is on the saint theater you know it's this kind of three thousand seater it's really high pressure you have to do your seven minutes and then you're off they said to me what music would you like to play on this is in the rehearsal what music would you like to play on to? And I said, uh, something by Captain Beefheart. <laughs> they really had a conniption at the thought. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what then. Um, let, let's do I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony, which they were forced to play before I went on. I just did a set about these fucking anti-choice bigots. Um, what was great was I, I we did the, I did the show and Lily Tomlin was comparing and I come off the set and this woman with a clipboard and a headset just goes uh, Lily Tomlin wishes to see you in a dressing room and I'm taken upstairs I'm taken to Lily Tomlin's dressing room the door opens she's got a, a costume change on and there's a wig and there's Lily Tomlin she looks in the mirror at me and said that was a very good set young man thank you <laughs> and then turned back and I'm ushered out. <laughs> Yeah. But it was one of those kind of like weird sort of surreal moments. But also a moment where you realise that I think the amazing thing is when we say this stuff and we express this stuff, we, we realise our power and potential as as forces for progressive change, for, for expressing ideas which are really important, which bring us together, express our community and our experiences. And I love that. So we did. So I did some stuff on telly with the Saturday Zoo, which was great fun. And then they offered me this TV show. And I just wanted to do stuff that people had never seen before. And Apropos that, could I just interject? This is the Mark Thomas comedy product first, right? You're talking about? Yeah. Well, I got to just put this in. I was there to see uh, you do a live thing. You do part live and you did part vignettes where you had been around. And in this one, you decided to drive an army tank up to the McDonald's order out window. So you drove the tank up and your little head was sticking out of the top of the turret and you ordered something and then the tank comes right up to the drive out window. Anyway, yeah. that's the kind of stunts you did. We had a load of stuff. Yeah. So we basically intercut an interview with the McDonald's press person saying how much fun they like to have and how they're a fun company to work with. And we had everything go up to that drive-in. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We had, I, I still go past it every now and again. We had a tank that went through it. We had um, a clown car. And what was, <laughs> fell apart. 
So as we were saying, we want this, we want a milkshake. And somebody would come out and go, you've got to get the car out of the way. And the wheels would fall off and the water would come out of the radiator. And someone said, we've got to move it now. And one of the clowns would go, I've dropped my trousers. And it we had um, we had a punk we had a low loader with a punk band playing on the back of the <laughs> low loader truck. We had a herd of cows. <laughs> I took a herd of cows through the drive-in at McDonald's and went up to the window and just said, "Can we just have fries?" Fries. <laughs> <laughs> the only way we can beat these junk food fuckers is going into McDonald's with Stephen Hawkins. This food tastes like builders' chug nuts. <laughs> Sue me, you fuckers. I am the brainiest man in the world. You are evil little corporate fuck pigs, you capitalist fuckers, you fat cat evil fucking profiteering fuck shit. Your fucking shakes have less protein than my semen, you evil fuck shit fuckers. That's great. And, so it, and that was the kind of start of it. And we wanted to do things that people didn't think, you know, we wanted to, to, to have fun, but show some kind of reality, I guess. And so at one point, we had these politicians. It was election time. And we asked all these conservative politicians if they would come and do a, a young person's show. And seriously, you couldn't. You, we, we, had, we had too many. We had so many politicians because they wanted to appear on telly because it was coming to the election. So they wanted just to get the exposure. And um, I dressed up as a giant teddy bear. And I'd interviewed them. And there was one guy who was really right wing. He would fit right in with the Trumpian Republican Party. And um, he comes on and he sits down and we start filming. I'm in this massive bear costume. I just said, do you like, um, do you like honey? And he said, oh, yes, I love honey, especially British honey. I'm very fond of British honey. I said, do you like Winnie the Pooh? He said, oh, I love Winnie the Pooh. I love Winnie the Pooh. I said, uh, you're pro-life and also pro-death penalty. Um, so... What age do you think we should kill them? <laughs> there was this really awkward pause for about eight seconds as he looks at this massive bear and then goes, 18? <laughs> <laughs> and so we would just muck around. I mean, we got into a huge truck. We tried to get, a, we tried to persuade a, a, a Tory MP to get inside a cock costume, this massive penis costume because we had a bet that he'd do anything to get on telly. he nearly got in he yeah. nearly got into the cock costume and i've always loved mike moore i've always loved his stuff yeah um and it's very funny because we oh one of the things we did i was so pleased when he was doing his his film about flint yeah and he turned up and he's got a tanker of water you know he turns up with the tank we did that gag fucking years ago and i'm not knocking mike moore great yeah. but like all of his films, there's three of them in one. And I think you get real value for money. But the point is, we did this thing in Yorkshire. Yorkshire water had just been privatised and they hadn't done any repairs. And people in Yorkshire are just going to have standpipes, which means you're going to have a, a, a pipe in the middle of the street. You wouldn't have any water in your home. You'd have a pipe in the middle of the bloody street. And so we were really furious. So we, we took a big tanker of water up there. And on the side, it's got a gift from the people of Ethiopia to Yorkshire water. And uh, this was just after Live Aid. So we do we, we did a Feed the World song um, for Yorkshire Water. So we do loads of stuff like that. And, and then we found out that well, you can really beef up the research. And somebody told us that there was a beach near uh, Sellafield, which was a nuclear reactor, and it radioactive seagull crap on the beach. So I was like, well, if that's true, we should be able to get some scientists up there and find out. And we did that. We got some scientists, and they identified the isotopes that could only have come from the nuclear reactor. And so what we did was we created this mobile exhibition that you could literally put in people's rucksacks and little bags and stuff like that. And we put on, we took over their exhibit. They have an exhibition center. We took it over. We did the whole, we took the whole thing over, put our own exhibition there. This guy who's a, a PR person comes on to try and defend it. And I said, have you tested the seagull crap? And he said, yes. And I said, what we, did you find the results were radioactive? And he said, yes. And so we've got this guy admitting on TV that they know the seagull shit is radioactive. Anyway, we broadcast the program. It cost them a million pounds in cleanup operation mm. to actually go and, and, and just kind of stop it, you know. Um, and when you do that and you just suddenly think, oh, this is brilliant because you can have a change. And it's me just running around fucking about. Yeah. Just with more research. And then we did a whole load of stuff where we pretended to be PR advisors at uh, an arms fair. What we did was um, I pretended to be a, a PR consultant that could advise people on how to improve their media performance. 
And we got all these people coming to us to do training sessions. So we've got this general from Nigeria coming along talking about, and he'll be, he, had, he was admitting to all this stuff, like human rights abuse. One guy we got coming along um, called Major General Wijoyo from Indonesia. And what I did was I'd give him a little toy. This, this stuff is on YouTube, so you can go and find it if you're right. I'd give him a toy. And I'd say, what we're going to do is if you do well, I'm going to take some toys away. If you do badly, if you do well, I'm going to give you some toys. If you do badly, I'm going to take some toys away. And so we do this interview. And I said, right, what? And my friend Chris would ask him questions like, how do you react to the allegations of human rights abuse, to the mass rape of uh, Chinese women by, uh, by the Indonesian troops, by uh, the invasion of East Timor, by the continued attack, by the genocide in East Timor, by Iran Jarba, and went through all these. And this guy loses his temper. And I go, no, 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 that's really bad. You can't lose your temper like that. I'm going to take away a horse, <laughs> a spider, okay? And um, what I advise you to do is this. And I'd get him to say, okay, can you work on a policy of partial admission? You know, can you say... These bits are wrong, but this bit is true. Just admit a little bit because they won't believe you if you lie on all of it, if you, you know, just say none of it happened. And so he said, he said, yes. I said, only if you do it if you can. And we got him on, we got him filmed admitting to torture. And so he sits there admitting to torture while I'm swapping fucking toys with him. Yeah. And it's a really bizarre thing. Anyway, he, he wanted us to pitch. He came up to us and said, will you pitch for this to train the Indonesian army and spend six weeks in Jakarta? And it's just like, I said, well, that's a very interesting proposition. So we got, we actually did pitch for it. And then we went to um, the British embassy. This is about six months later. And we interviewed, we got one of his, we got the defence attaché to come round. And we did a similar game. And we always do that, only admit it if it's true, only do it if you can say it. And he admits to the use of British equipment in East Timor, and um, which the government had always denied and they'd always lied about. And so had the Indonesians. And we broadcast it, and it was fucking, it just went nuts. It just went nuts. And uh, the amazing thing was, we could have made a fortune if we were doing this for real. Yeah. We had all different regimes coming up to us. I remember the Serbian delegation came up to us and said, if only if you could help us because we are drenched in blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. And, and so the show ahead. had this comedy edge to it, but it always, but it became more and more rooted but kind of, we, we became accidental journalists. I agree. I agree. And that, that brings me to um, the uh, Dispatches show, which I thought was yeah. brilliant, and um, which um, I had the great fortune to be pulled in by you uh, for the After School Arms Club. And I just want to just say a few, mo a few seconds here to say that um, I got a call from you and you said, Doug, I need Dougie, as you always do. Uh, Dougie, I need your help. And then you said, I want to send some things to you and then have them sent to you from various places. They're going to be a bit dangerous. And then you've got to send them on to me in Britain. So this became that the idea was that kids, kids in Britain and in Ireland, could order weapons and have them sent internationally to various yeah. areas and then yeah. have them moved to Britain. So suddenly I had stun batons. I, ha I, mean, I had these stun sticks with a pointy thing sticking out of them you could beat somebody to death with. I got a, a giant taser that um, I accidentally tased myself with. And I, I was recording the whole thing. So then... <laughs> I love that. The that was that, that was a great moment. And then, I of course... That's what I love about you, Doug. Yeah. Was the fact that you're such a lovely, great human being. <laughs> that, of course, somebody sends you a taser in the post. You don't use it against anyone but yourself. <laughs> Stun button. Brokered by Shokta Associates from Korea to human rights campaigner Doug Nunn in California. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. I appreciate it. Hi, my name's Doug Nunn, and I just received this today, a few moments ago, from Korea in the mail. And it was mailed to Tar Associates at my address in Albion, California. Is this Sister Barbara and the girls? As repeat firing for longer durations can damage unit and void the warranty. I received the, um, the baton. Really? Right here, the Stunmaster Stun Baton says it's 20 inches long and it gives off 500,000 volts. Oh my god. 500,000? It's got two 9 volt alkaline batteries in it right now. And is it all together or is it in little bits? Do you have to put it together? <clears throat> now I'm going to turn it on. 
It's just strange to think that there is actual people that's out there doing it. For three to five seconds, it will cause a loss of balance and muscle control, total mental confusion and disorientation, leaving someone dazed. Wouldn't want to be in the receiving end of that one. But anyway, that's what it is. Let me show you one more time. I held the wrong part. Anyway, that'll show me. Don't hold the top of the gun. I found out the hard way. Well, How Mendocino is that? <laughs> oh, it was totally. And I had set up my little video camera, and I recorded it dutifully and sent it on to uh, the show. And then your guys used it, and it was on show. <laughs> and so I ended up getting all of these uh, old Brit friends, comics, and so forth. Hey, Doug, I saw you. You taste yourself. <laughs> it was lovely. But the great point of the show was, in the end this wonderful 50-minute show, you actually got some laws changed. Maybe tell us about dispatches in this well, show. The, the laws did change in Ireland. Mm -hmm. They changed in Ireland about the nature of torture equipment and what you could and couldn't import and export. And that was really that was really amazing. And, and we did it in, in kind of alongside it. I was doing a whole load of stuff in the UK that was tracing arms and arms shipments and all sorts of stuff here. And we, I wrote a report about the. Um, I was, I went to Parliament. I actually got asked to give evidence in in Parliament on arms dealing about all the stuff that we had found. And it was, uh, it was great. It was really interesting going up there and talking to all these people. As, as I said in the, at the time, I've never been in a room with so much wood on the wall where I haven't been arrested and in court you know, <laughs> courtrooms have always got all that wood and I looked around me in this committee room and it's all that wood on the wall it was kind of weird because we've changed the law on a couple of things it's not just that the arms they wrote this report this public report the arms this committee published it and the chairman of the report sent me a note saying in the opening two pages of our introduction we commend your work and thank you for the evidence that you have presented. And I sent him a legal note that said, if you ever say anything nice about me again, I will sue you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we have changed laws, you're right. We did a thing on, um, there was a thing called the Conditionally Exempt Works of Art list. So if you inherit works of art or you inherit stately homes, you could not pay the inheritance tax by making these available to the public. But the trouble was... It was a scam. You put these things on a list, but no one told you where the list was, who was on the list, whether you could see the list, how you could get to see this stuff, who owned it, anything. And so you had this technical right to see this stuff. So we did a show where we just found out, we did some digging and found out people who had got stuff on this list. And we found out that this big old Tory fella called Nicholas Soames, who was uh, the grandson of Winston Churchill. I, re I remember that. Ah, go ahead. And he... He had a rather lovely three-tier mahogany buffet with partially reeded slender baluster upright supports on the list. And so we did. We, we said, I love, we, we, did, we love three-tier mahogany buffet coffee tap. We love these tapes, especially with partially reeded slender baluster upright supports. Fully, fully reeded, I hate. Non-reeded, I despise. Partially reeded, that's me. That's me. So we wrote in and said, can we come and see your... Three to have mahogany buffet table with partially really slender balustrades. And he said, yes, yes, you can. And so we arranged the time. Mark, you're like a giant storybook. So um, Sorry. Uh, I like that. I like that. So that's good. Just maybe we'll ask one more question now okay. just about some of the books you've written, if you don't mind. Okay. And then we'll yeah. perhaps we'll do another interview in the near future, yeah. if you don't mind. Love to, Doug. You know that. I just wanted to mention, I've read a number of your books. I read, as used on the famous Nelson Mandela, Underground Adventures yeah. in the Arms and Torture Trade. Yeah. Read The People's Manifesto, the one where you yeah. do Walking the Wall, where you go along yeah. the wall in Palestine. I just wondered, like, when you decide to write a book, and you, like, for example, the Nelson Mandela one, or The Wall, for example, those are pretty controversial things, and you decide to go and dig in. Is it the same idea you're trying to c combine journalism and comedy? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, it is. It is exactly that. All jokes are stories. Every single joke is a story. You have a beginning, you have a middle, and you have the wrong ending. That's how it works. 
A man walks into a bar, he does something. You set up an idea. Another man walks into a bar, he does the same thing. You re-establish the idea. A third man comes in and subverts it. Okay, that's how it works. Those are the gag, the rule of three, right? So all jokes are stories. And for me, the, the most interesting comedians are storytellers. So what I decided was, instead of doing observational comedy about your life, about things that happen to you, what happens if you go and have an adventure? If you go off and like on walking the wall, I, I walked the entire wall in the West Bank from start to finish. And it's 730 kilometers, 723 kilometers long when it's finished. It is, it's nuts. We walked on both sides of the wall. It took us three months to do because we kept on getting arrested and stopped. Uh, we also had interviews. We'd go and interview people. We'd, like, we talked to these amazing people. So uh, on the Palestinian side, you talk to people you bumped into all the time. And on the Israeli side, you talk to, we got to go out with the Magav, who are the border patrol. Somebody arranged for us to go out with the Magav. And so then we're literally getting into a Land Rover and the guys are shouting, just move the grenades, just move the grenades. There's not enough for you and the cameraman. Move the grenades. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm looking at the cameraman with this look on my face. Like, you better fucking have this on camera. <laughs> And so we, we walked the length of the wall. And the, the, the idea was is that you would experience something and you'd be able to do something that no one else had done. And we would come back and share that story. And our experience, my experiences, what I had learned would be kind of percolated into something of pertinence for me by the act of creating the show and retelling the stories. And that this would hopefully share something with the audience and you can take the audience on a journey that they hadn't gone and it was really thrilling i love i mean i love that i love the idea you can go and i mean when i said i think i want to walk the wall everyone went that's a great idea you're nuts and actually the amazing thing is is i felt safest on the palestinian side people would always look after you you get occasional bumps but the Palestinians were the most hospitable people you can ever meet. Literally every village we went into, people would come up, complete strangers. You must have coffee. Where are you from? Come, come sit with me. Meet my family. You must have dinner. Come stay with me. And, like, we, and eventually we were just going, we don't want your coffee. We don't want just leave us alone. We built in, and we used to call coffee the Palestinian roadblock, right? Because you would be stopped by like, There's no fucking way you would get past this. People offering you cakes and biscuits. Literally, we had people killing fucking chickens. We go, no, no, don't do this. Not for your life. <laughs> Else, you know and, and, and it was just it was amazing and so we, we everywhere we went was was really interesting and people wanted to tell stories sometimes they'd tell them quite bitterly sometimes they'd tell them they want you to know they want you to know and sometimes they go you're going to go home and make money out of this aren't you and i go yeah with some luck yeah i am i am and you they'd question you and what you're doing there other times, the Israelis, when you ever, whenever you went into a settlement, people always saw the camera and just said, you're the enemy, you're journalists, you're here to have a go at us, which is, you know, kind of true. But I mean, you know, if you're in an illegal settlement, you're in an illegal settlement. I want to meet you. I want to talk to you. I want to find out what you think about it. I want to find out why you're here and what you think you're doing. And I want to find out your stories. But you're in an illegal settlement and I can't change that fact. Do you know what I mean? So that fact speaks for itself. All settlements on the West Bank are illegal. They're illegal under international law. And so it was really fascinating. You'd meet all sorts of different people. Some were religious, some were political, some just wanted cheap housing because it's cheaper to live in settlements than it is uh, to buy a place in Tel Aviv. Some were Russians who had just come over. You know, Israel ha amazingly had, you know, uh, one million and a quarter, so one and a quarter million people from Russia who are Jews, came to Israel. That's quite an amazing thing. That's quite an amazing thing. It would have been nicer if they'd done it without occupying Palestine and without you know, all of that. And, and there were people who didn't realise who there, there were Russian Jews who just didn't know that was going on. They didn't know the, the political context that they were coming into. And so it was really fascinating meeting all these different people with different opinions and different views and and actually creating complexity. Because if you think of settlers, people normally just think of the vision they have of settlers, which is burning down Palestinian trees and olives and shooting at them and all of this kind of stuff, which does go on. But that's only one part of it. And only to see one part of any story is really, you know, you're missing a lot. And, and when you only see one part of a story, you deny yourself the complexity of actually understanding. And so for me, it was, really, it was a really amazing journey. To, yeah. to go on and uh, to witness all these things. And I always took the idea that you should try and find the goodness in your enemies and the weak spots in your friends. Now, before you start going, always fucking endorsing suicide bombers. 
that's fucking it for me, mate. I'm fucking old. Seriously, I'm not. I'm just, it's a fucking difficult job, isn't it? Suicide bombers. There's not exactly a career ladder here, is there? How do they recruit? Do they have adverts in the local paper? Bored with life, no friends, must have own car. I merely ask. Mark, you are an absolutely fascinating man. Ken's loving it too, okay? Solidarity. Solidarity, bro. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great Pleasure. to meet you. Speak soon. Okay, take care, guys. Short history of Coca-Cola, invented in the 1880s in Atlanta. The inventor was a man called John Pemberton, who comes back from the Civil War addicted to morphine. The inventor of Coke is a junkie. I see him as a kind of... with a Stetson. Now, Coca-Cola was a mix of caffeine, cocaine, and heavy red wine. Just something to calm me down. And this is fantastic. The inventor of the world's premier selling soft drink was a junkie knocking out cocaine and red wine. Fucking brilliant. Because my mate Sam's been experimenting with cider and ketamine. <laughs> Ketacola's coming. So... 1886, the red wine comes out. 1903, officially, the cocaine comes out. For some reason, John Pemberton sells the company because the fun's not in it anymore. The name Coca-Cola comes from the cocaine. Obviously, Coca-Cola, cocaine. It could have been any drug. Could have been heroin, dopa-cola. Um, hashish, smoke-cola. Acid, oh, my bollocks look like Dumbo's wings. Ola. Um. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause, and Donka, to our logo designer and Euro Snap Sessions artist, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international look on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.